monkeys. You can take your apology out of your trophy and shove it straight up your ass. And another thing, just wait till next year. Good morning and welcome to episode 355 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller with Den- with Ben Lindbergh. And Ben, we've finally done it. We've ended the week. On a multiple of five. Ended the year on a multiple of five. Feels good. It does feel good. It doesn't feel so good that that we are going to lose that immediately. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's nice for now. Yeah. Um, how are you, Ben? I'm well. Do we need to do anything to note the end of the year? I mean, I guess yeah, la- last night's was kind of an end of the year themed show. Do we? Mm-hmm. I mean, should we? Should we pop something or uh, countdown? Uh, you want to count down something or? <laughs> I don't know what we'd count down to. Um, yeah, I don't know. Other than thanking people for for listening to us this year, I don't. I don't have much to say. If you. If you got a if you got a lot of money for Christmas, buy a baseball prospectus subscription. Uh-huh. All right. Um, all right. So we've got some questions. Uh, not not well organized, but uh, some good ones. So I'll just go down and, and pick some. Um, so Robert, friend of the podcast, uh, says. We often hear elimination games described as all-hands-on-deck scenarios with managers employing shorter hooks, all available starters in the bullpen, and other tactics that ignore the future beyond the day's game. Does this change in strategy actually help any, and if so, how much? Uh, And then there's a bonus question, which we will also get to, and then there is a worst question, which we will also get to. (laughs) Um, So first off, um, it seems to me that I mean, almost nothing you can do in baseball <laughs> does much. I mean, you could you could do things to materially hurt your chances of winning. But I mean, once you start with the premise that the best and worst teams in baseball, uh, you know, have <laughs> very little difference even in one game. There's not much you can do to make yourself, uh, you know, better than the best team in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that, even the advantages that you could get. Uh, seem to not ever actually be applied, uh, or, or I guess the strategies don't seem to be applied in a way that would actually capture them. The all hands on deck uh, strategy is is really it's a it's a half measure at best as usually applied. You you very rarely see a, a you know a manager take out a pitcher who's pitching well after you know three innings or um, you know like really really empty out the bullpen in a in a dramatic way you might get a couple more outs out of your closer you might have one starting pitcher in the bullpen um and yeah you might that's have the a, thing it's not even really hand it's not even really all hands on deck no, like it's it, one extra hand on deck and, and <laughs> yeah. one hand that is being you, asked to squab a bit yes more. if you had squab, a squab a verb swab is a verb swab there you go Swap the decks because they're because they're on the on the deck. Goodness Everyone's gracious. on the deck. Embarrassing. Um, um, yeah, if you could if you could take a few days off before the all hands on deck day, and you had your entire rotation available, that might help. But by the time you get to a, an all hands on deck day, you're there are generally a couple a couple people who are below decks. Uh, so I don't know that that it helps that much. It would be nice if we could if we could do a controlled experiment of teams that were playing with all hands on deck and others that were not. Um, I, I guess if you looked at like teams that were down 3-0 in a series or something 
and one of them would be playing all hands on deck and and the other one would not <laughs> i don't know whether that would be a it, you'd have such a tiny sample you couldn't even tell what the effect but, was probably so let me ask you this imagine a world where um where baseball treated the uh, game seven a potential game seven only a game seven so it would only happen in those you know occasional years where it goes seven um they treat game seven the way that like the world series of poker treats the final table where they just, they stop playing and then go away for four months and mm -hmm. set up the cameras and have like this, this, uh, you know, big showcase tournament months later. Mm -hmm. Um, also like a bowl game in college football where the season just stops and everybody goes away. And, uh, and then a month later they come back to play their, their playoff game. So imagine a scenario where, uh, baseball did this and that they stop after game six and then they save game seven for you know a neutral site um, in a um, you know in a in a warm weather state mm -hmm. and they play it on uh, you know New Year's Eve or something like that mm -hmm. um, which uh, it's the Scott Boris suggests exactly almost well, I guess not, without well, the delay but you know in a way it also it also solves the problem of home field advantage which baseball has never solved uh, in the World Series um, where everybody seems to think that most uh, most solutions to the home field advantage problem are uh, are flawed in some way. Well, this would this would eliminate it. There would be no home field advantage. The seventh game would be on a neutral site, so each team would have three chances at home in the series, and then the seventh would be a neutral site. So anyway, the point is that I'm getting to is in this scenario where presumably at least five days have elapsed, uh, it truly is all hands on deck. Uh, or could be all hands on deck. Everybody could be fresh. Everybody could be rested. Um, would that be a style of baseball that you would be more interested in seeing, or uh, mm. does the you know does it just get too um, you know too too unlike baseball, too unrestricted for you to enjoy? Yeah, I think I like the limitations. We talked about how how baseball has a built-in respect for limitations the other day right with the yeah the replacements on the rosters you can't you can't come back into a game after you leave a game um so we we enjoy that on some level and i i also enjoy that on some level it almost so, it almost bothers me that that you can play differently in the postseason to to any extent that you can yeah. use your fifth starter or, or your last guy in the bullpen or whatever it is yeah, I agree. What if? It, yeah, okay. All right, that's as far as I'll take that. All right. Um, bonus question: Tougher division next year, AL West or AL East? Uh, East, I think. I don't. The East doesn't really have a Houston, and Houston might be better. Should be better, um, but probably still the worst team in either division. Uh, but that's not quite the same as asking. I don't know. I mean, it, tougher division. You could take that one of two ways. With you know which. Which division can you win more games against is one way of taking it. But another is which is tougher to win. And Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I thought he meant sort of talent level. Or, he might, but he didn't say. He didn't say. <laughs> if that's what he meant, then I'll say East. East? Um, Either way, you say East. Yeah, I guess I say East. So you think the East is going to be tougher to win than the West next year? Uh, yeah, I don't know. About the same, probably. I mean, whose fourth, who's fourth yeah. place team is better next year? Um, uh, probably pretty close. I, I would say East, probably. Who's better, the Mariners or the Blue Jays? Uh, 
that's it's that's close. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's I the think, same question that I just asked. I don't know right. where the standings are. I don't know whether it's the Orioles or the Blue Jays who would be my my fourth place pick, but one of those and probably Seattle. So, yeah, I don't know. I probably take the East team. While we're here, mm. who's better, the Angels or the Yankees? Uh, I'd like to see if if the Yankees add Tanaka, but if they if they do, I would say them. I don't I don't know that I'm buying the Angels right now. And and if I may, mm. who's better, the A's or the Rays? I think I I think I might go A's. And finally, who's better, the Rangers or the Red Sox? Probably. Red Sox, but really, even yeah, I don't know. It's... Adding Fielder and Chu and removing Kinsler. Ellsbury and Kinsler. Oh yeah, well, and removing Kinsler, yeah, but uh, but and, you know, you yeah. adding Profar too. Been removing Ellsbury and and S- Salty and mm. uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't know. It's close. And, you know, maybe Drew, right? Drew probably maybe, maybe Drew. Yeah. Having Bogarts for a full season, I I don't know. Um, close, I I don't. Yeah, I don't know. One I'll of, take. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take. take uh, I'm going to take Rangers mm-hmm. in that one. I'm going to take Rays in the second one. I'm going to take Angels in the third one. I'm going to take Blue Jays in the fourth one. And uh, clearly, or I mean, you know, or obviously, but uh, if you just look at the top top four, uh, uh, that's tough. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, is close. Have you ever noticed how similar it is when the uh, when the Angels and Rays play? How similar that is to when the Rangers and A's play? No, phonetic phonetically. <laughs> if not, Rangers A's, Angels Rays. The, the American League has signed like every free agent this winter. I don't. I did a thing every uh, winter. Yeah, pretty much every winter. I did a thing. Maybe it was two winters ago, trying to figure out how much better the AL had gotten relative to the NL over the winter just from like adding NL free agents. Um, And I forget what it was. I I think it was like a few wins. I I calculated like if you, if they played head to head or something all year, it wasn't, it wasn't huge, but this year they have maybe even more than usual signed everyone. Um, And I don't know whether it used to be that the theory for why the AL was better than the NL or one of the theories was that, just sort of that the Yankees were in the AL and that the Yankees being in the AL would make the Red Sox spend a lot of money and then other teams would have to, the Tigers would have to spend a lot of money to compete with them and and it would just sort of raise the whole talent level of the league. Um, but now, I don't know, now you have the Dodgers in the NL, so that would seem to be a, a counterbalance to that. And then there was also a theory that just like the, the AL just happened to have smarter front offices for a while, either by chance or, or part of that competition uh, aspect. I don't. So I don't know why it is that the AL would be spending a lot more. It seemed like like the um, NL had by far the better crop of, of young players this year. I'm just I'm just talking out loud here, but uh, the DH seems to not be irrelevant to this discussion. If if you have uh, if you have a league where um, first of all uh, a you know some small portion of of veteran players, post-free agent players, can only play in that league. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, a large portion of free agent players 
uh, the back ends of their contracts look a lot better when you at least have that that um, you know that exit valve, right? I mean, Prince Fielder is a is a is an example of this. So you have a you know a, a number of players who you know can can uh, are are presumably more valuable in the American League, um, or at least less risky in the American League. And then meanwhile, you have uh, you know if if you have I don't I don't know if this actually works out, but I mean you I don't know well no, you you might. Uh, no, that you probably wouldn't. Never mind. I'm going to stop saying that. Uh, but then you have, um, because of that, you need, uh, you know, you have a more offensive league by nature because you have nine hitters. So you're going to have slightly more pitching attrition, and you need slightly more pitching investment for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, sure. just talking out loud. It's a theory. Uh, all right. Uh, last question of this email: uh, In which pocket do you keep your wallet, and is there any change in it? Uh, so I used to Are walk. Are you googling ar- which pocket do I keep my wallet in? <laughs> no, I used to walk around like like Kramer in that Seinfeld episode where he buys the calzones with like stacks of pennies and gets exact change. I used to be known as <laughs> as the guy who always had exact change. Uh, and I almost I prided myself on that. Um, these days, I don't carry a wallet or change. What do you keep your metro card in? if i if I am going to have to use a metro card, I, I'll just put it in my pocket. Just put everything in my pocket. What kind of pants do you wear? Jeans, mostly? Hmm. <laughs> do you ever I mean, it seems like that's a recipe for washing a metro card. Uh, I, yeah, I've done that. I think I did that once. <laughs> my, do you my, own a wallet? I do. It doesn't really, uh, it wouldn't fit comfortably in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? I keep, uh, well, so I have a, I actually have, I'm a little bit exempt, I think, from this question. Uh, not the same way that you are, but my wallet and my keys are attached to each other, which sounds like like the sort of thing that that you would do for a child, and so when I say it out loud, it's sort of embarrassing. But in fact, I don't know. I don't have any idea why. It's like having those mittens that are attached to your coat or something. <laughs> it's like having your name on the on the tag of your shirt. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know why everybody doesn't do it though. It's so so sensible. You never. You. It's impossible to lose your wallet. You can't drive away. Without your wallet, you you can't do it. Physically impossible. Try to do it without, with with this with this combination, and, and you will see how impossible it is. So I've I've been rocking the wallet key combo for probably fifteen years. Um, so because of that, it's not it's not very comfortable to keep my wallet in my back pocket. I don't have one of those classic grooved wallets that you can just slide in your back pocket. So I keep my I keep I I also wear a hoodie uh, all year, every day all year. Like I. If you if you ever watch an Angels game and you see a guy, I I mean this is true. If you see a guy sitting behind home plate, uh, you know next to the scouts uh, in August, <laughs> and it's it's like ninety eight degrees, and there's a guy wearing a black hoodie. That's me. A black I wear, hoodie too. I wear a black hoodie. Want to soak up the sun every day of the year at all times. I'm wearing one right now. I sleep in one. I wear it on sunny days. I wear it constantly. And so uh, so my keys can either go front front pocket or uh, you know sweatshirt pocket. <laughs> and no change, no change in a wallet. That's absurd. I don't drive and I don't I don't work elsewhere. So I don't 
need to bring my keys anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't, yeah. really go. don't go anywhere. All right. Um, <laughs> Michael Bowman asks, if your goal as a GM was to maximize your wins-to-home run ratio, what lineup would you choose, assuming average pitching? Um, and, gosh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what his motive was in asking <laughs> this question, and I just can't think of what the motive is. I, I mean, I, I like to know... I like to know the subtext of the question so I can actually answer it and pivot. And in this case, I think the subtext is, what query can I get you to run? <laughs> uh, I, so, well, you said you made a spreadsheet to answer this yeah, question. And I did. I did. I I was wondering if the subtext is the Yankees, where they're criticized uh, oddly. They are, are criticized absurdly uh, for having too many home runs. Yes. And so, uh, so Michael takes as a given, perhaps, that the um, traditional sports writer's platonic ideal of a winning team is the 1985 Cardinals, and therefore, uh, you might try to actually, you know, it might, it might, uh, you know, this might be where it's coming from, that it's a, a, a more noble way to win mm-hmm. uh, without hitting home runs. And, 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 and I did play baseball when I was a kid um, in a confined space where home runs were illegal, and if you hit a home run... You were out. Um, so maybe that's where it's coming from. Well, the 1985 Cardinals hit 87 home runs. And yeah, I, I didn't go that far because... I think, I think I've constructed a, a lineup that would hit fewer home runs. and, uh, and Be would, better? Oh, well, you actually have a lineup. I have a lineup. I don't know I don't know if it would be better. The 1985 Cardinals won 101 games, but it would be, uh, I think, a pretty good team. I... Uh, they so they hit 87 homers and they won 105 101 games. Yeah. So that's like a, a like a 1.2 ratio or 1.1 ratio. Mm-hmm. I didn't go that far back because I didn't want the noise of of generational issues at work. So I I only went five years. Well, I didn't I didn't look for a team that did this. Oh, you you actually. I, I just I made a team. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't make a team. So first, let me just share the results of my spreadsheet. Uh huh. Um. The in the past five years, do you want to try to guess in the past five years who the the the, the home run the least home run hitting winning team is? It's it's not necessarily a winning team, but the the team that hit the fewest home runs per win is. Uh, give me, I'll I'll give you 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 can guess year and guess franchise and. Is it like the 2010 Padres or something? Maybe. Uh, it is not. Mm. Uh, it is not the two. They they actually are seventeenth though. Mm. Good guess. They are at point six eight home run. Point uh, six eight wins per home run, uh-huh. uh, which is uh, you know that's good. The uh, the number two team is at point seven nine mm-hmm. wins per home run. And so what's striking is that so point seven nine. Keep that number in your head. What's striking is that the number one team. Is at 0.91. There is a huge mm. gap between wow. one between one and two. Massive, massive gap. I mean, this is like one of those classic stats where it's like Barry Bonds has more intentional walks than the number two hitter than the number two hitter has than like you know what you know you know that stat that, uh, that way of formulating a fun fact. Right. Yeah. This is that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Huh. No. Should probably get this. Probably, probably could if I thought about it for a few minutes, but that would be boring for everyone. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Does, is there a raised team? Maybe? I'll give you. I'll give you one more. One more notable thing is that the team that did this, uh, the team that's number one, uh, I you know I looked for five years, right? Mm-hmm. No, I guess I looked for six years. But five of their six seasons in that stretch are in the top thirteen. Oh, is it? It wouldn't be like last year's Royals, would it? Uh, last year's Royals are fifth. Oh. You're not bad. You're not bad at this, Ben. Well, I I know that you can't hit home runs in Kaufman. <laughs> so, and I know they were a decent team, so they had to have been pretty high. Uh, I don't know. Uh, is it? Well, I don't know. I was going to guess maybe it was like one of those Mike Sosha teams or something that ran a lot, but uh, you I'm didn't go back that far. They've yeah. been a slugging team since then. Yeah. Um... It's the 2012 Giants that won the World Series. Oh, okay. So the Giants uh, are first... Um, sixth, tenth, twelfth, and thirteenth on this list, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, the I mean you know Michael asked us to consider league average pitching, um, and presumably league average ballpark, and the Giants don't have a league average ballpark. It suppresses home runs, you know, in every direction. However, they also didn't have a league average pitching. They had poor pitching uh, in 2012, um, as I recall, or I don't know, maybe it was league average, but it wasn't. It wasn't World Series caliber, mm-hmm. um, and yet, and they, they did it. So, um, so I don't know what to take from that team um, specifically, but um, they didn't they have a lot a, of power hitters. Ninety-six ERA plus that year. Yeah, so that's that's below average, and they were uh, they were despite the home runs, they were a very good hit. I think they had the second best OPS plus uh-huh. in the league, uh, behind only the Cardinals. And I, I mean, you know, they they didn't have a big power hitter, but where did they get their production from? I, I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, Posey well, is, is, they, was, was awesome, and Andres Torres was good. Uh, they, sorry, not Angel Pagan was good. and They outplayed uh, their, their Pythag by six games. So I guess oh, that, that helps. That helps. Uh, that helps. Maybe, uh, I don't know, defense, Crawford, Pagan. Uh, yeah. I guess you'd, you'd ideally you'd have a lot of um, – You'd have a lot of. I think that you actually probably wouldn't want a lot of walks in a weird way. Um, well, yeah, because OBP guys are often power guys. Exactly. Yeah, there's just such a correlation there. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure where the Giants stand out. They didn't strike out much, and they haven't struck out much. Their strikeout totals all those years is, has been fairly low. Um, so I guess ideally, yeah, you'd have nine. You know, you'd have nine Angel Pagans more or less, or. Or eight Angel Pagans. Well, uh, unlike you, I, I actually attempted to answer Michael's question. Do your team. How does it do? <laughs> um, so I started with the the Pakoda spreadsheet, which I guess is is still not official Pakodas, but just about. Uh, and I I filtered so that it was like MLB guys, people who were actually projected to to play this year, and I sort of ruled out like utility infielders who maybe are projected for 250 plate appearances or something, looking for full-time players. And then I just sort of, uh, I, I made everyone have a 600 plate appearance season and, and just prorated everything. And uh, so then I ended up with one guy per position. And so I guess I'll just, I'll go down the lineup. So at catcher, I have, and then I just created a, a column for, for like warp over home runs or something. Um, 
And so the catcher on this team would be John Jaso, uh, who is projected to be in 600 plate appearances, like a three and a half win catcher with nine home runs, um, which is which is nice. He, he walks a lot and is not a big power guy, or I guess it's the ballpark partially too. Hang, hang on, can I can I interrupt real quick? Sure. Uh, I did not listen to your instructions exactly, <laughs> but but if if I may, can I get can I give a before you reveal the correct answer, can I do a quick guess at the answer, an sure. uneducated guess? All right. Yeah. So just just to be clear, I would have guessed Carlos Ruiz there. Okay. Um, Are you fat? You're factoring in defense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. To the extent that that Pakoda is, I am also. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, first base. I would go with um, Freddie Freeman. First base, I. I sort of cheated and went with Joe Maurer, uh, who is in this spreadsheet projected as a catcher. But that explains is... why I got uh, I, I <laughs> yes. got a bunch of emails about Joe Maurer's <laughs> positional eligibility in the book. Yes, you did. Uh, that was that was why. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so he's projected to hit ten homers and uh, as a first baseman, something like three and a half wins or so. Um, much, much more incidentally, as a as a catcher, as a catcher, he's like a like a four and a half win player at least. Uh, so, it's back of the envelope sort of thing. He's like a three and a half win first baseman with ten homers. Um, whereas, let's see, I can find uh, Freddie Freeman is Pakota. I think has never really liked Freddie Freeman, if I remember right. So he's only projected to be like a two and a half win player. Uh, which is which is low, but um, okay. Uh, okay. Second base. Second uh, base yeah. Uh, and let do you have a position a position switch trick here too? Because I, I'm no, not going actual to actual second baseman. Okay, I'm going with uh, I'll go with Pedroia. I went with Scudero. Uh, yeah. Okay. Scudero is projected to be like an average player and hit like three home runs. <laughs> so um, okay. again, this is kind of it's ballpark influence. We've got an Oakland guy and a Giants guy, and now, well, uh, who who would your shortstop be? Uh, Elvis Andrews. Andrews was very close, uh, probably the the second best choice, but the first best choice, according to this, would be Everth Cabrera, uh, another another big ballpark guy, projected for a little over three wins and like four homers. Um, third base, um, Matt Carpenter. Uh. Yeah, I don't actually know about Matt Carpenter because he's probably still in here as a second baseman. But I, I, I guess I cheated a little bit and made Alberto Callaspo a full-time player. Um, There's no cheating about that. He is a full-time player. Yeah, I guess he wasn't he, pro- projected for. He was projected for 400 something plate appearances. But yeah, if, if he's a, if he's a full-time player, he's like a, a little over a two-win guy with nine homers. Uh, left field, Martin Prado. Uh, well, I went with Gardner. Okay. We're putting him as a left fielder, which he will be. Um, and center field? Michael Bourne. Thick Bourne was close, but Denard Spann is projected for like four homers and almost three wins, I think. Thought about him. Yep, yeah, thought Dakota about him. likes the defense. Right field? Norioki. Yes. Uh, and then DH, I, there like isn't anyone actually projected yeah, as you've DH. Yeah, you got Butler or Ortiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I just sort of tried to think of what, what hitter I would want. And most of these people that I've named are, are 
good defense guys, which makes sense. They would be valuable, but not hit a lot of home runs. But at uh, at at DH, obviously that that doesn't matter. So you just kind of want a a guy who's a good hitter, but not a great power hitter. Um, so I went with I went with Shinsu Chu. I don't know if it's the best possible choice, but he's he's projected for like almost a 380 on base percentage and 17 homers. Um, so that would I think be pretty good. So that's where that's where I would have put Mauer. Uh, if I if I were doing this, yeah, I would. I guess that that yeah I guess that makes sense. But I think the gap between Mauer and like the next most valuable but not power hitting first baseman was pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you add up all those guys, you get like 25 wins above replacement with 71 <laughs> 71 homers, uh, which is not a lot of homers. The the Marlins hit 95 home runs last year. So if you factor in, I mean, I guess there'd be some bench guys getting at bats. So maybe this team would get up to to 80 home runs or something like that. But it would be a pretty good team if the not on my watch. If the if the lineup is well, yeah, ideally not. But uh, if the lineup is like 25 wins above replacement, and then you have average pitching, um, that's a that's a good team. Yeah, that's like uh, that's. Uh, mental math here. That's like that seems like ninety four ish, ninety four ish yeah, wins. Yeah, I, I think so. So this would this would probably be a, a playoff team that that hit fewer home runs than the Marlins last year by a, mm-hmm. a pretty wide margin. So fun question. Okay, uh, Ryan asks. I'm guessing this is the last question of the year, Ben. Mm. Wow, might be. Uh, Ryan asks. Um, my question for it's got a pun too. A na- an an economist pun. Oh <laughs> yeah. Uh, my question pertains to the applicability of an economic model to baseball in the Ricardian model, named after economist David Ricardo. Countries unequivocally gain by specializing in a certain product and subsequently trading said product on the international market for other goods. By engaging in free trade, each country utilizes its comparative advantage to become better off in terms of utility. Could the same thing work in baseball and farm systems? For the purposes of baseball puns, it could be called the Richardian model. Complete specialization, like J.P. Richardi. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Complete specialization would most likely be infeasible, as trading a stockpile of, say, second baseman for a roster of nine other players would probably make the savviest GM's head spin. But let's say 30 teams each partially specialized in one of 10 positions, lumping relievers and starters together to simplify the math, thereby leaving three teams per position. Could you envision such a model working? Hmm. Uh, no. You'd have to think, I mean, you'd, you'd have to have, I mean, the reason that this works, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, in economics is that building the infrastructure to support an industry is extremely um, you know, uh, expensive, mm-hmm. takes a lot of time, takes a lot of time to, to do it and also to do it right. And then once you build that infrastructure, all sorts of um, like ancillary industries start building up around it to support it and make uh, cheaper the entire process. Uh, so if you're the, uh, you know, the cell phone region, then, you know, you start getting these chip makers and these like, I don't know, flip, flip, Flip maker. I don't know what do you, what do you call the part that flips out of a cell phone. <laughs> um, 
And so, um, and, and, you know, transportation mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, from, from, uh, to, to transport the chips is much cheaper because it's, it's being built right there and, and all that. And so in the thing about baseball is that it, it just, I don't know, I don't know what the investment is in teaching a third baseman compared to a right fielder other than yeah. one coach. There, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's one coach and then you, maybe there's, you know, Presumably, of the spend 30. all your time doing right field drills and just <laughs> just throwing to third base <laughs> but, for I all mean, of spring training. I, I but so, but the right fielder could already do that, you know. Yeah. Like I mean, your your coach can't spend all spring training teaching throws from right field to to third base, and um, you know even if you got the best right you know the best minor league manager for right fielders like presumably of the 30 managers one is slightly better than the others at managing right fielders for some reason even that it's pretty small i would think it's pretty small margins and um so it's hard to imagine the, the other thing is that i just i continue to believe that in baseball uh every transaction uh has a little bit of spillage that they're, that they're, all transactions are slightly inefficient and you don't want to have to trade um, that generally if you're trading surplus you're not quite getting full value out of it uh, for whatever reason maybe because teams know that you're trading from surplus and don't have quite as much leverage um, more likely it's because these GMs are incredibly risk averse and in particular that there is a um, that there is a kind of um, a for the sake of simplicity, a public relations uh, factor in every trade, more or less, the idea that you're scared to trade things that go away and become better under someone else's watch. And so uh, teams don't like to trade. And so even if you have all the second basemen, uh, that's great, but teams aren't going to give you, if you're trading a 10 second baseman, you're not, you can't rely on getting a 10 right fielder to fill your right field hole. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I, I don't, I haven't done the, you know the research to prove this, but it has always been my impression that it is inefficient to trade. Uh, that you lose your six percent to the realtor on every transaction, <laughs> and ideally you don't do it mm -hmm. unless you you know unless the right opportunity falls into your lap. Which I mean, teams do make profit on trades because they're not trading four times a week out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know if if a team devoted itself to being the best second base development team probably still wouldn't end up with the best second baseman. Some other team would just happen to draft a guy who was better and just would be a better second baseman, even even if he wasn't getting the same quality of instruction. So yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it would be different at certain other positions that have more, I don't know, specific skill sets. If second base is kind of like the place where you put people who don't fit at other positions, maybe that's not a good example. But yeah, I don't think you could differentiate yourself that much. Um, however, let's, let's now, let's take this, I mean, okay, so imagine catching, mm -hmm. where, um, you might see a team that specialized in developing catchers would actually produce better catchers. Yeah. And so, now we're not talking, let's say, I mean, we're, we're suggesting that it's hard to trade, say you develop, you know, say the average catcher that's currently developed is a five, um, and it's hard to get full value, you know, full five value for every five catcher. But you know, maybe this team actually does a better job of teaching catching, which doesn't seem unrealistic. It's a complicated mm -hmm. job. Maybe they get a six. Although, on the other hand, where are those catchers going to play? It's hard to get mm -hmm. them to full reps. But anyway, let's assume that they could make them all into sixes. That might theoretically 
makes sense. I mean, certainly we've talked about the knuckleball idea, and it wouldn't shock me to find out that this question was actually inspired by our knuckleball discussion, because it does seem like there are very, very specific skills that aren't super labor-intensive and that could potentially be beneficial, that teams would have um, you know, some incentive to carve their, their niche uh, you know, with. So knuckleballing seems like one possibility. Catching, eh, maybe it is. I mean, teams need catchers. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else there would be. Yeah, I don't know. There are other specialties, like if you're, if you have a great training staff, maybe great medical staff, and you can keep players healthy, like like the White Sox have seemed to be able to do. Then you can you can either trade for pitchers who have been injured for other teams, and you can fix whatever is responsible for their injuries, and you can get them on the cheap, and they'll be good for you, or. Or you can keep them healthy and then trade them at full value before they break down for someone else or that sort of thing. So I don't, there are things that you can do. Um, but the the Richardian model, I think, is a little extreme. Uh, just out of curiosity, does the, does the White Sox reputation take any sort of hit from from last year with, with Danks and, and Floyd? Uh, yeah, I... I don't know. It wasn't like they had zero injuries before that. Um, no, but. of course not. But the, you know, these are two guys that they've had for a very long time, and that it's not so much that you know, oh, two injuries kill the whole idea. It's just that those are two of the pieces of evidence. I mean, those are two of the primary examples of White Sox pitchers being around a long time without getting injured. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I, it's just it. It does feel like a lot of things that we sort of take to be true. Mm-hmm. Maybe we take to be true because nobody ever looks at them again. <laughs> yeah, or or just because there's bound to be one team that over the course of several seasons has better luck with, with injuries than all the others, and then yeah. we attribute that to some skill on their part. All right, I have another one. Okay. Um, this is from Scott, who asks, can catcher framing skills break out like Chris Davis's home runs did in 2013? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, not... I mean, rarely, but Chris Davis is pretty rare, too. I think, I don't know, I've written about J.P. Arancibia and how he seemed to go from a, a very poor pitch framer before last season and even early last season to uh, a good one for the, the rest of the, the season. And there seemed to be a reason for that. I don't, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the transaction analysis thing I wrote when he signed with the Rangers, and he, he was... Uh, According to Max's ratings, he was 45 runs below average from 2010 to 12, and then he he got down to 50 below average, like in the first I don't know month month and a half or so um, of of last season. And then there was a point during the season where uh, where Salfasano worked with him. Salfasano, the former catcher and mustache haver. Who is now the the Blue Jays' roving catching instructor? Wait, but, does former does former also modify mustache? The, the mustache I don't know. I haven't seen a current picture of him. I, you'd you'd think that he would he would be a current mustache ever. If not, we're breaking we're we're breaking hearts tonight. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So so then he worked with Arncibia, and and someone in the the Toronto media wrote about that, and from that point on. Aaron Sebia rated really well, uh, and he he ended up significantly above average on the season in in framing. And when you watched him, he he seemed to be he he looked better. I don't I don't 
I'd have to go back and, and compare what exactly he changed, but he he just looked a lot, uh, you know, a lot more quiet before. Before that, he was always moving around and he had no sort of stable base and he he was getting crossed up a lot. And it seemed like seemed like after that he looked better and the numbers reflected that. So I think that sort of thing is pretty rare when I when I talk to coaches and players about framing. They all sort of emphasize that you just have to put a ton of work in and you have to do drills and you catch pitches and it's just this sort of experience-based improvement where you just have to get a lot of reps and see a lot of pitches and you just gradually get better at it. But I think from time to time, if if someone like Chris Davis can, can adjust his swing and become a great power hitter, then I think a catcher who's not good at receiving could adjust his glove or his stance somehow and, and become better at it. I think it's, uh, it's similar. Um, I... I, I don't know that it's it's been answered yet whether uh, catcher framing, pitch framing, um, is a skill or a talent at this point. And it it does seem to me that there's probably a significant portion of it that is um, probably comparable to plate discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's instinctive. Uh, it's how you see the ball. It's how quickly you identify the ball. Um, and, you know, it has to do with your eyes and your mm-hmm. cognition. And that it probably is somewhat out of your control. There are, are cases of guys who develop patience, but they're they're very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if catcher framing was closer to that um, than um, you know anything else. Yeah, I think it's more teachable than that. But um, but there's definitely a skill element to it. And I, I tried to ask people that question or answer that question when I was writing the thing for Grantland and I would ask them like, well, can you take someone who's not good at catching and make them into a Molina if they are willing to work hard enough and you have a good enough coach? And the consensus seemed to be no, that you, you can't make everyone a Molina, but you could, you could get most players up to like competence at least if they're willing to work at it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely been there where I ask that question and then I, but but that's the wrong question. <laughs> that's a straw man. <laughs> yeah. You, you you're the by asking the extreme, you're trying to provoke a good reaction so that you get a good quote. <laughs> yep. But in fact, it gives them an easy out because they don't want to say anything interesting, and it's mm-hmm. very easy to uninterestingly say no, not Molina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got a lot of that. Yeah, here I am. Here I am telling you how to do your job. Uh, I have another one. Wow. This this is from Cody. I don't want to leave anything on the floor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, should, Cody. we should go back and answer all the ones we've gotten this year that we never got to. We'll just do a five-hour show. Uh, this is from Cody. Um, my question concerns the defensive development of young players who break in at positions other than their long-term position. For example, if J.J. Hardy leaves the Orioles or if Drew re-signs with Boston for one year, how difficult would it be for Machado or Bogarts to move over? I guess if Drew doesn't re-sign. Boston. Or no, if Drew does resign with Boston for one year and then leaves, that's uh-huh. I guess what the question. How difficult would it be for Machado or Bogarts to move over to shortstop? Um, assuming, of course, they're con- competent defensive shortstops to begin with. After a year or more of playing third base, similarly, if Oscar Tavares is playing all three outfield positions most of 2014, how much does that hinder his ability to play center field in 2015 or 2016? Uh, I don't know. We don't know, but what's <laughs> your think- thought? I think um, I don't think it would be that difficult. 
I think if you if you're if you're switching someone over like at double A or A ball or something because there's some top prospect at the same position and then he just never never gets those developmental years in, then it would be difficult like once he gets to the major league level or something to try to switch him there. Even if he had the skill set, he just wouldn't have wouldn't have seen enough balls off the bat or wouldn't have you know, wouldn't have developed the muscle memory or, or whatever it is to make throws from that angle. I think if you if you reach the major leagues like like Machado or Bogarts did, basically, you know, as shortstops or at a certain position, and then you have to wait a year for someone else to to leave. I, I don't think it's that big a deal. I, I think it's zero deal whatsoever. I think zero. I think that mm-hmm. the effect on his defensive metrics compared to uh, playing there all year, uh, you know, upon arrival mm-hmm. would be zero. Yeah, I actually have occasionally you'll see a player just change positions to a position he's never played before. It happens mm-hmm. probably once a year uh, for every team. Yeah, um, and like I remember Howie Kendrick playing left field for the Angels, and he had never played left field, and he had like an hour and a half's notice, and he did it for like weeks after that, mm-hmm. and you never would have known. It mm-hmm. just it's pretty easy to fit in if you're athletic enough to handle the position. If you've been holding a glove your entire life, if you've been catching baseballs forever, and if you have the arm to handle the position, you can basically do it immediately. And um, certainly, that's not even nearly the obstacle. Machado and Bogarts wouldn't face nearly the obstacle uh, in moving back to a position they've been playing literally their entire life, but for the Mm -hmm. last 11 months. Right. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, it's... it's, you know, it's like it's like if they lived in L.A. their entire lives, and then they moved to New York for eleven months, it would mm-hmm. not be difficult to come back and find their favorite sandwich. It's really uh, the best metaphor I've come up with all <laughs> but, year. But like, they might <laughs> saved, it, saved it for the end. But what if <laughs> they don't? They don't want to move back because they now like New York, and so they're now unhappy in Los Angeles, which probably would be the case based on my experience of Los Angeles and New York. Alexi, um, Alexi Amarista did this too. He, I think he had played like one game in rookie ball in the outfield, and then they moved him out there with an afternoon's notice. He was out there before the game like taking fly balls, and, and then the game starts, and he's totally fine and makes like this incredible leaping catch his first, his first game. Um, I mean, it's hard to move down the defensive spectrum, or it's hard to move up uh, the defensive spectrum. It's really easy to move down. And I mean, Bogarts and Machado, they're both artificially moved over. They haven't lost their abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the question presumes even that they haven't lost their abilities. Mm-hmm. And as far as, as feel, I don't think it's an issue. Now, I, I've never done it. <laughs> I've never been a major leaguer. And I'm certainly, even if, I ha- even if I'm lying to you, and I have been a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. I have never been a major league shortstop who then had to move to third base. You that have, I can say. You have, me. however, been a California resident who moved, <laughs> who moved to, to New, New York, York and then moved back. And came back and found his favorite <laughs> so, sandwich. So you've lived this. Basically. <laughs> uh, fact, but so, so came up with that metaphor. So it's conceivable that I mean, if someone smarter said, "Oh no, you don't understand. The speed of the game is different," and the you know, it would take it would. I mean, if somebody smart told me that it would take a couple of weeks to catch up to the game, uh, I wouldn't argue. But I, I would bet that it's not even that. I would bet that it's like literally four innings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, should we do one more? 
Wow, <laughs> this is unprecedented. I I don't know if I have anything to say about it anymore, but um, let's see. Uh, we'll just do all of them, whatever. Yeah, the year blowout. All hands on deck. It's an all hands on deck show. <laughs> right. uh, we Annie? are squabbing away. Actually, <laughs> I made it the entire year without mispronouncing squab. <laughs> that was my New Year's resolution, <laughs> too. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to answer this one or a- ask this one because we have gotten this one many times and never answered it. Um, Annie asks, uh, and th- it's funny because uh, w- it's always it's always prefaced with something like this. Goofy hypothetical here. Yeah, there's a real example of this. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, while perusing baseball reference pages recently, I came across the bio of a fellow named Icebox Chamberlain, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good, a good way to start your question yes. uh, if you want to get it answered at the end of the year. A pitcher who apparently was ambidextrous and would occasionally switch arms during the course of a game. This got me thinking. Obviously, it would be just about impossible for anyone to consistently do this at the major league level today, but let's say it were possible. Let's say that, Ben, and that a person could exist who would be able to get major league hitters out with both his left and right arm. What kind of impact would he have on the game? Uh, How much more valuable would that make him than someone who was a league average pitcher using just his left or right arm? And we have a a quick answer to this. You can go ahead and give the quick answer because we've written about it a couple times on the site, um, and then I have a thought. So go ahead. Have we? What did we write? Did we write about Pat Vendit? Yeah, exactly. Matt Corey did a, a long piece about the Vendit rule. Yeah, right. Uh, which uh, so Pat Pat Vendit is a is a minor leaguer who was in the Yankees system. Still in the Yankees. Uh, still, I think he he was a rule he was rule five eligible, and then yeah, I don't know. He played. Yeah, he was playing for the Trenton Thunder in Double A this year in late August. So uh, yeah, he's he's a. 28-year-old um, ambidextrous pitcher. Oh, you know, I've always wondered how <laughs> how Baseball Reference would handle this. Yeah, and he's... I'm now looking. Uh, it says bats both, uh-huh. throws left, comma, <laughs> Vendit typically throws with a hand needed to gain the platoon advantage. <laughs> Poor Sean Foreman probably had to, like, code I know, that messed up of... his code so badly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Pat Vendit is a minor leaguer who actually does this. And has has done it, you know, minor league successfully, which is to say he's been one of the 1,200 best pitchers in the world, um, but not good enough to make the majors and has been famous mostly for this this fact. Although, really, through he was always old for his age, for his level, but through age 25, uh, he was completely hot stuff yeah. in the minors, mm-hmm. um, but always very old uh, mm-hmm. for his level. Um, and he's unlikely to make it to the majors, especially at this point. Um, but you know, he came close. He came close in that really suggestion. Should. If, I mean, if there's any decency in the world, I, if that guy on the Marlins got to do yeah, it, come on. He has a, he has a career 2.41 ERA in 306 and a third minor league innings. So he'd be probably, fit, probably pretty terrible. Fit. Yeah. This fit is absurd. Have you looked at it? He's, <laughs> he's got... He's is, good. Oh my gosh. Okay, so he's got 10.2 strikeouts per nine, mm-hmm. 2.4 walks per nine, 0. 0.4 home runs per nine. Yeah. 0. 0.4. This is like a this is a this is a Gagne fit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a lot of that is is lower level stuff, but even at the upper levels, he he hasn't been hit hard really. Uh, I mean, worst people worst people have have gotten cups of coffee. So. Sure. Someone, I hope, will do it at some point. 
So the, I guess the, the, the only thing is that, I mean, this is something that we all want to see and that makes tons of sense. Um, does it surprise you that it hasn't happened yet? I mean, it, it, it feels like the, the, the barrier for entry to the major leagues is, is actually relatively low when you think about how many players do get called up on every team every season. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's going to be, um, you know, there's going to be 1,500 players who make the majors this year at some point. Um, so, or, you know, slightly fewer. So, I mean, this seems like such an obvious gimmick to try. Why wouldn't Vendit have made an appearance? I mean, what? Why would you keep him in Double A? I guess is the question. Like, like, really, what is the point of keeping him in Double A? Either bring him up and see if it works, mm. or just, just don't. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, this is it's so pointless to keep him in in Double A when he's twenty eight. Well, he was in Triple A briefly at the end of two thousand twelve. He pitched thirteen innings there. And, and was good, pretty good in those 13 innings. And then I think I think he might have had an injury uh, because then he was back in the Gulf Coast League and, and Florida State League and then worked his way back up to Trenton. I forget what the story was, but I think if there hadn't been whatever that was, he, he might have pitched this full season at AAA and who knows. Um, it feels like an underrated. Um, well, maybe it's not underrated, but Tor- perhaps la- he had a torn labrum in his right shoulder, and he yeah. didn't. He did not continue pitching with his left shoulder while he okay, so, while he rehabbed that. So that was my. That was what I was about to say. It seems like one potential benefit of this yeah. is that you have <laughs> once you once you break an arm, as you inevitably will. You have another arm, um, which seems good. Except uh, this goes back to the question that we once asked about if you're if you had a pitcher who was a good enough hitter to play first base on his on his off days, what would you do when he inevitably had to have Tommy John surgery? Would you would you give up that year of hitting uh-huh. to get his arm back? And I guess with Vendit, it's the same thing. Do you just let him throw through it? Um, do you do you basically like is that an advantage or does the first arm surgery take him out anyway? And I guess, yeah, I, I guess. Well, I guess with in his case, since his his only route to to the prosperity is mm. the the dual throwing, he didn't really have a choice. If he were actually really good with both arms, then it would be a tricky math problem to decide whether a year of his of his career is worth giving up. You know. 30% platoon advantage for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And that's a good question. That would actually be a fun one to solve. Somebody, so somebody it, could solve that. It looks like I'm reading this article written when he returned to Trenton in August, and it looks like he, when he was rehabbing the right arm, he pitched in the World Baseball Classic for Italy with only his left arm. Um, I think by that point, I think he had healed enough that he could he could pitch with one arm and not the other. Um, I guess if, if it's an injury that serious, then you, you probably can't even move your other shoulder enough to pitch with the other arm. But I guess once he got to a certain point where his, his one arm wasn't all the way back, but it was close enough that he could pitch with the other arm. And then it looks like he is now, uh, he is now dropped down. He used to be over the top from his right side and sidearm from the left, but he has now dropped his arm angle from the right side also. I think it's more likely that you would see someone who uh, who just who uses this ambidextrous ability to barely make it to the majors 
it's more likely that that happens than that someone comes along who's like legitimately good with either arm. Like it would be a sort of thing where a guy's on the bubble and oh, he can he can kind of pitch with his other arm, so maybe that just barely makes him worth a roster spot because it would be really Wait. difficult to be really good from both sides. He was uh, always he was always uh, like from one side he was like more of a soft tosser. I forget which was which. I guess from the from the sidearm from the left side, maybe he was slower and sort of more of a junk baller than from the other side. You think it would be really difficult. You, 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 uh, so you don't think that if you were, and I'm not challenging you on this, I don't know the answer, but if you were working on your change up with your right hand, you don't think that there would be any portion of that that would help you throw your change up with the left hand. I mean, you you think it would be like developing two pitchers in in twenty, you know, in in you know two to, to two in one shampoo and conditioner. Two is not big enough for one. That's that's what one means. You know that joke. You know that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well delivered. Um, I I think I think there would be some carryover. Probably <laughs> you'd be able to you'd be able to tell like. The grip or something maybe but i don't know like the whole arm motion would be just different and weird and i i think about how hard it is to like write with your other arm if you're not this way I don't, it's difficult yeah but you are this way that's yeah, the point right you're this way we can't even imagine what it's like they're this way uh-huh so do, <laughs> let me ask you i mean presuming that the two arms are of equal strength mm-hmm if a Steven Strasburg were born with 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 Steven Strasburgian abilities as well as complete ambidextrity, would he punt one for the benefit of the other, or would he keep both for the benefit of all mankind? Uh, I think I don't know. I think it might be worth it to keep both, but. But would he? I'm asking, would he? Because you're. He? I, I'm just trying to figure out what you said when you said that it would be someone who's just on the bubble who would use this to, yeah. to just barely punch out. You're just saying because ambidextrousness is so rare, or because it actually would be detrimental to develop this way unless it were your only shot. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, because I, I just feel like I don't know. We should have like a, a neurologist or something on to tell us how this would work, because I feel like. Well, Ben, you're in luck. I am a neurologist. Oh, well, that's convenient. I, I, even if you had equal ability with both arms, I feel like it would be like different neurons that would control each arm. And if you didn't practice with one, then they wouldn't wire together the same way that the other side did. So you'd have to, you'd have to devote equal time to both, I think, or maybe close to equal time to both, I think, might, would be my guess. And that would be Very diffi- difficult. difficult to do. If that were the case, it would be very difficult to do. Now explain switch hitters. Yes, I don't know. I don't. I've never understood that. Uh, but they exist. This they seems do. to be pretty compelling evidence. They do. I don't. Maybe it's. Yeah. I don't. Well, maybe the fact that both of your arms are involved in, no matter which side you hit from, you're using both of your arms. One is is more dominant than the other, but they both play a role. Maybe that makes it easier to do than switch pitching. Um, I don't know. And even, even switch hitters aren't often equally skilled from both sides. They're often better from one side and just, yeah, they just, they only manage to play at a major league <laughs> level from both sides to a near equal degree. Yeah. Pretty pathetic, really. 
Um, so I don't know. I, I hope it happens. I'd love to see it. All right, one more. Wow. This is uh, going to be an hour-long show, I think. I don't know if we have an answer for this one. Um, so this is from Brett, who uh, asks, Though BP's brand allows for a great deal of latitude, there are still interesting ways to talk about baseball that don't seem like they would fit within the BP brand. What pat- podcast or website that doesn't yet exist and wouldn't be a good fit for BP do you wish you could listen to or read? Do you do you have an, do you have any thoughts about this question? Uh, well, I, I I like to disagree with the premise. I think that there are interesting ways to talk about baseball that wouldn't fit with the BP brand. I'd like to think that that we could fit any interesting way into our brand somehow, which doesn't mean that we have, but just that that we could. Um, I don't know. I I mean, we haven't you know we haven't had like a podcast with ex players who come on and. Like, if we had a podcast with, you know, like, Gabe Kapler or someone like that who who has the playing experience and was paired with, with people like us, that would be interesting. You're starting to see that a little bit more on some baseball broadcasts or Baseball Tonight-type shows. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess that would be... Interesting. I don't know. There's, there's no. But that would be that would be that would fit perfectly within our brand. That's sure. That's sure. more yeah. a supply problem. Right. Yes. I I don't know what wouldn't fit within our brand. We're willing to talk about all kinds of outrageous things. We talk about but, anything. Yeah. Sometimes though, you'll I assume that you'll have the experience. You'll go back and you'll be reading something from 2001 on our site, and you'll be like, oh yeah, we you know we we would never say that now. We could never say that. It's too. It's too kind of like, I mean, the easy word is snark, right? There's a level of snark that, um, you know, we've largely moved past and that I wouldn't feel comfortable using mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's limited to us. I, I, I think, you know, there's this sort of phenomenon that I see on Twitter sometimes where the player will kind of, kind of jokingly and kind of not jokingly confront the writer who says something yeah. and you'll see it with like, you know, uh, you know, somebody reports a rumor about a, somebody yeah. reported a rumor about Brett Anderson. Yes, and right. Someone Brett said Anderson he used to be a, like a, an A type pitcher and now he's a B type pitcher or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so then Brett Anderson made a joke you know, about tweeted it. and made a joke about it. And yeah. there's this way that players are able to, um, you know, to confront writers now in a way that, um, I, I think probably does to some degree um, factor into what you choose to say subconsciously, mm-hmm. maybe. And not just that. That's not the only way that it does it. But, you know, snark is not a, a marketable commodity in the same way that it used to be. If, if you're really negative and really biting, um, you set yourself up for a lot of, um, you know, a lot of criticism and people, uh, you know, mock you and use your words against you. And there's a way that, um, that, that sort of incisive tone doesn't play real well anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that tone would fit with BP, uh, exactly anymore. We're, we're not dismissive of 30 clubs the way that we used to, or 28 clubs the way that we used to. We're, we more or less start with the premise that these guys know things that we don't, that they're you know hired for reasons that they're smart guys who've risen to the top of their field and that we can criticize them but we also evaluate them with a certain degree of respect. Um, 
But Brett's, Brett's question is, uh, is there a kind of podcast that we don't do that we would want to do or that we'd want to hear? And That we would want to hear. And probably so, so either I'm of just, us would want to hear that one. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to hear that one. And that's not the one that I would want to hear. You're right. But I, I, would, I would just guess that there is a... Um, there is a self-censorship that happens in a lot. It, probably there's a self-censorship that happens in Well, let me give you a, I probably shouldn't. I, if I'm smart, I'll stop talking. But every once in a while, I, I, I remember this idea that I had once and that I, I wouldn't do because it's, it's weird, it's unprofessional, <laughs> um, it's in, slightly embarrassing, and I think it would be the funniest thing in the world, which would be... To find out, uh, say, jeez. Um, uh, oh, uh, <laughs> all right, I'm going to keep talking. Um, I, I thought once about how it would be funny to go through the major league injury logs over the previous years and try to determine um, which ones happened while pooping. <laughs> <laughs> because you got to figure that there's a certain there's a certain percentage of the world's hospital visits are caused by pooping, uh-huh. and so baseball players have almost certainly missed time. Sure, there have uh, been players who've missed time due to sneezing. So you'd figure due it's, to sneezing, it's right. a similar so, level of stress at times. So, so I thought, well, you know, I wonder what injuries major leaguers have that would that, that might have been caused by poop. <laughs> Uh-huh. No, I would never do that. I would right. never that. That's not a piece that would necessarily fit our brand. <laughs> no, um, so. but but I I and so I and I don't even even in even in the what do you want to hear or what do you want to listen to category. I don't think I'd want to hear that either. <laughs> I moved on from that idea for about a thousand reasons, <laughs> and I I apologize for having remembered it <laughs> three minutes ago. But what I'm saying is that there is a degree of complete uh, id that might be fun to hear in a podcast mm-hmm. that uh, a a podcast by people who are both knowledgeable about the game who might have some connection to the game who are educated about the game and yet have absolutely no um, feeling of self-censorship for any reason for mm-hmm. professionalism for decency <laughs> for uh their future job prospects for any reason whatsoever who just absolutely just uh, are pure id mm-hmm. uh, might be a fun show. So that's yeah. I guess that's my answer. And and that doesn't exist anymore. That almost existed 10 years ago. And that's what got a lot of us into this. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it doesn't exist, I, I would say. So that's, yeah, that's sort of like a like a Fire Joe Morgan podcast, maybe. Yeah, more or less. I mean, fi- I think even those guys acknowledge that 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 doesn't play would, anymore. Yeah, they, would, they, well, they don't. They don't even like really. I would want that. Yeah, really I would listen to that though. <laughs> if someone just sort of read and critiqued terrible articles about baseball, I would. If it, if the person were clever enough, as the the writers of Fire Joe Morgan were, I would probably listen to that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. If you have an idea for a, a podcast that we're not doing <laughs> that we should be doing, let us know. First, uh, sorry, second Google. Uh, result for injuries defecating <laughs> uh-huh. is man falls to death after defecating between subway cars. <laughs> well, that's yeah. I don't know if that's defecating. Oh my gosh, Ben! So yeah, Ben. There, the seventh result is a Wikipedia page for toilet-related injuries and death. 
<laughs> Are there any baseball players on there? Uh, historical deaths. There's a, there's a subcategory, historical deaths, and a sub-subcategory, possible occurrences. So historical deaths... In 1945, the German submarine U-1206 was sunk after the toilet malfunctioned. That's not quite a defecating injury. That's a stretch. (laughs) King Wenceslas III of Bohemia was murdered with a spear while sitting in the garden on August 4th, 1306. That happens in Game of Thrones. Someone is killed with a crossbow. Oh, come on! Ben, 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 Ben! Come on! What? I'm, I'm a season behind you. I didn't say who it was. Yeah, but you said it was. I said it happened. Ben, Ben. <laughs> Someone dies ben, in Game of Thrones. Ben, Ben, <laughs> Ben. Everyone dies it. in Game of Thrones. Ben. <laughs> okay. All right. George II of Great Britain died on the toilet from an aortic dissection. According to Horace Walpole's memoirs, King George rose as usual at six and drank his chocolate. For all his actions were invariably methodic. A quarter after seven, he went into a little closet. His German valet de chamber is in waiting, heard a noise, and running in, found the king dead on the floor. In falling, he had cut his face. Uh, there's some good ones in here. Oh, this is a good one. Michael Anderson Godwin, a convicted murderer in South Carolina who had his sentence reduced from death by the electric chair, sat on the metal toilet in his cell while fixing his television. While he bit one of the wires, the resultant electric shock killed him. All right. So maybe there's enough material for you to do this. But there's no no baseball connection as of yet. Uh, not as of yet. Do some digging. Why did you just message me? <laughs> Sent you a picture from from a Wikipedia of <laughs> someone. Right, I completely expected that to be stopped now. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> it's a picture of someone that? on a on a on a toilet in a squatting position. So that's the year. That's so the year. <laughs> this is what happens when we go for over an hour. <laughs> we end up talking about this. The only reason we're stopping is because my battery is about to die. <laughs> Otherwise, we would just continue recording into the new year. Um, All right. So that's 355. Thanks for a very good year. We had a, yes. a good year. This I um, I don't know that I expected to be here a year ago. <laughs> not sure that I thought we'd make it the entire year, but we did. It was really fun. Your guys' email questions are uh, easily the highlight of the show mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, highlight of my week. So. Uh, thanks, and we'll be back uh, with 3.56 on Thursday. Thursday, yes, I think so. Uh, yeah. And in the meantime, please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, that, that helps us attract new listeners. And uh, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, where there is currently a 40-comment thread that started with uh, someone asserting that Jeff Bagwell's 1999 was the greatest offensive season in MLB history. Uh, didn't we actually? Didn't we? No, I'm sorry. We did the best fantasy season ever at one point, and uh, I don't think we did do that. I think I went with Larry Walker's like 2000 uh-huh. or something like that. But yeah, Bag- Bagwell 99 is is not a bad choice for that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but if you wanna if you wanna jump in and be comment number 41 on that thread, uh, go to our Facebook group. 